This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 248, Family Matters. Now, before our slight scheduling snafu, I had originally intended this episode to follow directly on the heels of our Engelbert Kempfer one, and for a very good reason. The story begins in a very similar way, with a German who took a job with the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, and who went to Nagasaki as a result. This week's story is not exclusively that man's story, but it's a story that begins with him, so it behooves us to spend some time on it. His name was Philip Franz von Siebold, and he was born in Bavaria, specifically a little chunk of it that was, at the time, called the Bishopric of Würzburg in 1796. Siebold was from a family of means, with a long history in medicine, and thus it surprised precisely nobody when he ended up receiving a medical doctorate from Würzburg's own university in 1820 after blazing through his coursework with flying marks. Along the way, Siebold developed a reputation as a clever young man as well as a bit of a romantic. He loved stories of travel and adventure, and in particular, devoured the work of one of his idols, Alexander von Humboldt, a naturalist who had just started to publish his scientific account of his voyages in South America when Siebold was a young man. The complete set was 21 volumes, so it took Siebold a little time to get through them all. Alexander Humboldt is notable for a lot of reasons. Among many others, he was the first to notice how the shapes of South America and Africa fit together on a map, and to propose that at one time they may have been part of some kind of supercontinent. For our purposes, he's most important for the lust for travel he kindled in young Philip Franz von Siebold. And so, in 1822, von Siebold took an unusual step. He joined the army of the Dutch Republic. That might seem a bit odd, considering he was, you know, not Dutch, but it made a lot of sense. Germany at this time had no overseas colonies for a young man who wanted to see the world to visit. Indeed, in 1822, Germany as a unified country was still 48 years away. So he'd have to work for another country's government to get a job to fund his travel abroad. The Spanish Empire was right out. Even if he wanted to replicate his idol von Humboldt's work, and there wasn't much percentage in that, nobody likes a ripoff, by 1822, South America was, shall we say, somewhat less politically stable than it had been. Check out Mike Duncan's excellent series on revolutionary South America. If you're interested in that story, it's pretty crazy. Simon Bolivar's life was fascinatingly intense. 
The British Empire, meanwhile, was flush with its own naturalists, and the French Empire was in a bit of a rough spot post-Napoleon, so that left the Dutch as a natural option. Plus, he had family connections in the Netherlands. The old Dutch East India Company, the VOC, had gone bankrupt in 1798 thanks to a series of financial mismanagement issues combined with losses during the wars of French Revolution and Napoleon, but the Dutch government had taken over the property and holdings of that old state monopoly, including that half-million-man bureaucracy and the 10,000-man army, and both of those were always in need of new doctors. So Siebold signed up and was sent off to Batavia slash Jakarta to serve as a doctor for an artillery unit. Except then, one of the stupid coincidences of history intervened. Siebold, you see, got sick. Nothing life-threatening, but enough to take him off the active duty roster. Whatever it was appeared to be going around because the hospital must have been full or something. Siebold ended up coalescing in the home of Gaspar Georg Karl Reinwart, the Governor General of the Dutch East Indies. Reinwart was favorably impressed with the young man who was a talented young doctor and a bit of a polymath to boot. He'd picked up some melee despite having only been in the area for a couple months. So the Governor General stepped in to offer the young man a different assignment. Dejima, that lonely Dutch outpost in Nagasaki, needed a new doctor as the old one was about to rotate out. Perhaps young von Siebold would like the gig. And of course, the young man who loved romantic tales of adventure in faraway lands said yes. After all, it's harder to get both further away and more romanticized than Japan. And by the way, we should establish, Siebold will write his own account of his time in Japan, and by the time he wrote it, he definitely read Kempfer's writings on the country. He quotes at length from some of Kempfer's descriptions of the flora and fauna of Japan. I have, however, been unable to determine whether Siebold actually read Kempfer's work before going to Japan, so I can't tell you whether Kempfer had any influence on young von Siebold's desire to go off to Nagasaki. So long story short, on August 11th, 1823, Philip Franz von Siebold arrived in Nagasaki on a ship of his own, though that was a near thing as a typhoon nearly sank the boat on its way to the country. Now, Siebold had the good fortune to arrive in Japan at a good time, at least in a certain sense. Yes, for sure the Japanese were more suspicious of foreigners than they ever had been. A British incursion into Nagasaki during the Napoleonic Wars, when Holland and the UK had been on separate sides, had resulted in the suicide of the disgraced governor-general of the city, and the Russians were a constant threat from the north. Things were less welcoming in general than they had been during Engelbert Kempfer's time a hundred years earlier. On the other hand, Siebold was not just any foreigner, he was a medical doctor. That was a role the Japanese had particular interest in. You see, long before Westerners provided incontrovertible proof of the superiority of their military technology, the Japanese had already been confronted with proof positive of the impressive quality of Western medicine. Before Engelbert Kempfer even arrived in Japan, one of the main things the Dutch brought into the country were books, especially medical texts. Those works were then translated by Japanese scholars as a way to stay abreast of the latest developments around the world. Textbooks on surgery and anatomy were particularly interesting to Japanese doctors because of how different they were from works of traditional Chinese medicine. In the 1700s, Japanese doctors like Sugita Genpaku, Nakagawa Junnan, and Katsuragawa Hoshu all performed dissections on the corpses of executed criminals 
and found the results far more closely matched those from Dutch anatomy books than they did old works of Chinese medicine. They developed a lively interest in Dutch medical texts as a result, importing and translating a very large number with their own commentaries attached, and in a few cases even striking up correspondences and friendships with Dutch-employed, if not necessarily ethnically Dutch, doctors in Nagasaki. Von Siebold stepped into this tradition of cultural exchange and benefited tremendously from the interest of Japanese doctors in his work. He was able to develop close friendships with several Japanese doctors and on their recommendation was even able to obtain permission to leave Dejima to treat Japanese patients while Japanese doctors observed. He even offered to introduce what was in the Western medical tradition a relatively new concept, though its roots actually go back to China and India, vaccination. However, he was unable to find a Japanese patient willing to give the idea of being vaccinated against smallpox a try. When not practicing medicine, Siebold busied himself with two things. The first was collecting a substantial amount of material about Japan, books, manuscripts, anything he could get his hands on. When he did eventually return to Europe, he took back over 1,000 discrete volumes with him, all of which, like the original papers of Engelbert Kempfer, eventually ended up in the British Museum after being sold at auction. The other thing that took up his time was the tradition of single young men all over the world, women. Well, a woman. Specifically, Kusumoto Otaki. I can't really tell you that much about her because we don't really know a lot about her for certain, one way or the other. Some sources suggest she was a prostitute indentured at Maruyama, the pleasure quarter of Nagasaki, who Siebold became enchanted with. While the two could not get married under Japanese law, Siebold could essentially rent her contract indefinitely, and that's what he did. Other sources suggest that she was not a prostitute at all, and had developed an interest in Siebold during his trips out of Dejima, and merely posed as a prostitute to get access to the island. Whatever her background, the two appear to have been genuinely fond of each other to at least some degree. That may have had something to do with their child, Kusumoto Ine, a daughter born to the couple in 1827. However, this lovely and multicultural young family would not have long to revel in their bliss together. It might seem like Siebold's presence in Japan was permanent. After all, a normal two-year term would have been up in 1825, after which he could have gone on to a different assignment. But clearly he didn't want to do that. He seems to have preferred life in Japan and wanted to stay indefinitely. In 1829, he was part of that year's Sankin Kotai, the Dutch embassy to Edo to have an audience with the shogun. For Siebold, a trip to Edo, one of the largest cities on earth and the center of Japanese culture, was an opportunity not to be missed. He could acquire manuscripts and treasures he could get nowhere else. In particular, he worked out a deal with the court astronomer to the shogun, Takahashi Kageyasu. In exchange for a Dutch-language copy of the journals of Ivan Fedorovitz Kruzenstern, which, among other things, provided information on how thoroughly the northern Japanese islands had been surveyed by Russia, Siebold received a copy of a series of highly detailed maps of Japan made by a cartographer named Ino Takadata. Unfortunately, when the Bakufu got wind of this deal, they were not pleased with Takahashi's initiative in intelligence gathering. Instead, they were worried. Pressure from the West had only been growing more intense. Only four years earlier, the Bakufu had implemented the infamous shoot-on-sight order for Western ships attempting to enter Japan without permission, 
something that, incidentally, Takahashi had lobbied for. It was in this paranoid atmosphere that this trade stopped looking like a friendly swap in Japan's interest. It looked more like a foreign spy playing the naive Takahashi to get access to valuable intelligence about Japan. Takahashi was imprisoned and would die in prison 15 years later. Siebold, meanwhile, was ordered to leave Japan, and his partner and young daughter were to be left behind. And in the end, that's what he did. He really couldn't have done anything differently. After all, his wife and daughter, being Japanese, could not legally leave Japan. Doing so would mean exile for life, as the penalty for attempting to return was supposedly execution. So Siebold left. He went back to the Netherlands with his book collection, got married to a German woman, and settled down in the university town of Leiden, there to both practice medicine and spread the word of all the things he'd seen and learned in Japan. On the other side of the world, his young daughter was left without a father. Like all the offspring of Dutch men begat on Dejima, she was raised culturally Japanese, though the fact that she lived in Nagasaki meant that young Kusumoto Ine did have access, if she so chose, to her father's culture as well, at least if she wanted it. And it seems she did, because Ine took a rather surprising step. Once she was old enough, she started asking the Dutch merchants in Nagasaki to forward letters to her father. I have been unable to figure out exactly when this correspondence started, but it appears to have been pretty formative on young Ine and fairly regular. Siebold, via correspondence, nurtured an interest in the family business in his young daughter and sent her medical texts and the latest medicines from the West to study. And, recognizing that learning by reading, well useful, is not the same thing as learning by doing, he also asked the Dutch medical staff at Dejima to train her. Now, it's important to take a moment here to remember just how unusual that request would be. Women's education in the West was still pretty controversial in the 19th century, especially the early 19th century. Women's schools of higher education were still fairly rare across the Western world, though the movement to educate women was starting to pick up steam. Still, that movement was driven by a very middle-class idea that liberally educated women could raise better children and be better wives, not by the idea that they would get jobs in practical fields like medicine. In Japan, meanwhile, elite attitudes towards women's education were hostile. This is the age of the greater learning for women, an infamous work of Japanese Neo-Confucianism that essentially argued that the purpose of a woman was to obey and serve the men in her life. Yet neither of these facts seem to have overly bothered the men who helped Ine pursue her interests. Ine was able to find several Japanese doctors willing to train her, primarily because of her father's reputation. That lack of reticence to help Ine pursue her education among Japanese was, in part, a result of her specific interest in Western medicine rather than Japanese medicine. That interest positioned her not as a doctor in the sense of the time, but as a scholar of Dutch studies, Rangaku, with the Ran short for Oranda, or Holland. Japanese medicine was, during the Edo period, a respectable career path. Rangaku, by contrast, was kind of weird. Sure, Rangaku scholars reading Dutch books and fiddling with Dutch technology could discover cool stuff now and then, but that didn't change the fact that these were people who had chosen to dedicate their lives to the study of weird foreigners who talked funny and smelled strange and were just generally lacking in proper culture. Hardly a respectable bunch of people. 
So sure, hey, let them educate a lady. That just makes them all the weirder. In particular, Ine found a teacher early in her career in one of her father's old students, Ishii Soken. However, her relationship with Ishii was cut off in 1851, when her teacher sexually assaulted her. She refused to work with him further, and after she gave birth to a child from the assault, a young daughter, she reputedly refused Ishii's attempts to get involved in that child's life. Instead, she went to Awajima in western Shikoku, where the lord of that domain, Date Munenari, enthusiastically promoted Rangaku studies. She would remain in Uwajima until 1858, when her chief instructor suffered a debilitating stroke. After that, she returned to Nagasaki. In 1858, having returned home to her city of birth, she received some unexpected news. You see, after the signing of the 1858 Townsend-Harris Treaty between Japan and the United States, which further opened Japan to Western influence, other Western nations began to work towards negotiating similar levels of access to what the Americans had acquired. One of the least controversial from the Japanese position were the Dutch. After all, the Dutch relationship was an old one, it wasn't like the Dutch were much of a military threat to Japan. So, in 1858, Japan and the Kingdom of the Netherlands signed a Treaty of Amity and Commerce, which opened, among other places, Nagasaki as a treaty port opened to trade with the West. And on the heels of that news, that foreigners were about to make their way to Nagasaki in much larger numbers, came something else far more shocking for Ine. You see, Philip Franz von Siebold had never really lost his interest in Japan. He'd continued to promote all he learned about the country after coming back to Europe, and even volunteered to consult with Commodore Matthew Perry before the American departed on his fateful voyage to Japan, an offer Perry was happy to take as he knew very little about the country. When news of the 1858 treaty reached Siebold in his home in Leiden, he was overjoyed. One of the provisions, you see, was a guarantee of extraterritoriality for Dutch citizens in Japan. In other words, a guarantee that Dutch men were subject to Dutch law, not Japanese law. That meant, in effect, that Siebold's expulsion from the islands was no longer enforceable. After all, no Japanese government official could touch him without breaking the treaty. He promptly offered his services to a Dutch company, the Netherlands Trading Society, that was opening an office in Nagasaki. They accepted. The next year, Philip Franz von Siebold returned to Nagasaki with a young boy of 13 in his company. You see... After leaving Japan, von Siebold had, as we've mentioned, gotten married. He would, in the end, have three sons and a daughter with his wife. One of those sons was named for his childhood hero, Alexander von Humboldt. And so, when Philip Franz von Siebold returned to Japan in 1859, he was accompanied by his young son, Alexander von Siebold. We don't have an account of the first encounter between father, daughter, and half-brother, but we do know that Ine moved in with the pair shortly after their arrival. However, by all accounts, things were pretty awkward. Ine's spoken Dutch had atrophied, though she could read it fluently, and the same was true of her father's Japanese. Father and daughter had a very hard time communicating. And Siebold did not return to Ine's mother, Kusumoto Taki, who was still alive at this point. Instead, he knocked up one of the family's chambermaids, which by all reports infuriated Ine. She moved out shortly thereafter, and father, daughter, and brother went their separate ways. Philip Franz von Siebold stayed in Nagasaki until 1861, when he was fired. 
His advice was found to have little value for merchants, as Siebold was far more interested in natural science than economics. Instead, Siebold lobbied for appointment to the Tokugawa government as a special advisor on foreign affairs. The Tokugawa were happy to take any advice they could get and accepted, but this was too much for the Dutch consul to Japan, who was anxious to avoid another incident involving Siebold and the Japanese, and who had strictly warned the old man to stay out of politics. Since Siebold was clearly ignoring him, the consul ordered that Siebold leave the country, and in 1862, without a means to support himself in Japan, Siebold did just that. He would spend the rest of his life trying to get another job in Japan. First, he tried to get the job of the man who kicked him out and be appointed as consul for the Dutch government. However, the government was unwilling to give him that job because of massive debts he'd taken on. Debts that could potentially make the man vulnerable to bribery. So then Siebold tried his hand at convincing either the Russians or the French to take him on instead. Neither one wanted him. In the end, Philip Franz von Siebold would die in Munich in 1866, unable to return to Japan for a third time. His son, Alexander von Siebold, would not accompany Dear Father home. Instead, he ended up as a student interpreter for the British, hired on by Sir Harry Parks, the British ambassador to Japan. In that capacity, he had, shall we say, an exciting career. He was aboard British warships that participated in both the brief Anglo-Satsuma War of 1863, when the British blasted the hell out of Kagoshima in retaliation for the killing of a British national by Satsuma Samurai, and the western destruction of Choshu's Shimonoseki fortifications after Choshu attempted to close the Strait of Shimonoseki to western ships. From there... Alexander von Siebold ended up variously doing work for the Tokugawa government, accompanying the Tokugawa government delegation to the 1867 World's Fair in Paris, and escorting no less a personage than Tokugawa Akitake, the shogun's nephew, as well as the Austro-Hungarian government, by which he was actually ennobled as a minor baron. Eventually, the new Meiji government would take him on as an interpreter and special advisor for negotiations, for which he would receive the Order of the Sacred Treasure, and, probably more important for him, a steady job and income until his death in 1911. Of the Siebold sons, he was definitely the one most engaged with Japan, but far from the only one. His youngest brother, Heinrich von Siebold, also came to Japan in 1869 and trained some of the first Japanese practitioners in his chosen field of expertise, archaeology. But what of Ine? After leaving her admittedly less-than-nurturing relationship with her father behind in Nagasaki, Ine continued to work in medicine. She was able to trade on her father's name and her own growing reputation to get a job in a Dutch-run Western-style hospital in Nagasaki alongside an old friend of hers from her time studying in Iwajima, Mise Shuzo. In 1863, Kusumoto Ine was invited to return to Iwajima by Date Munenari, this time not as a student, but as a valued instructor in her own right. Mise Shuzo could not accompany her because in 1861, during a trip to Edo, he was arrested on suspicion of being an anti-Tokugawa Western agent. He wasn't released until 1865 when he did indeed make his way back to Ine in Uwajima. Along with Ine's daughter, who by this point had been given an adult name, Takako, the two passed the Boshin War in Uwajima untouched by political upheaval. 
Instead, Ine developed a specialization in obstetrics, and was one of the lead physicians during the childbirth of Date Munanare's wife, Yoshiko. Mise Shuzo, meanwhile, got married to Ine's daughter Takako after his liberation from prison in 1865. After a brief return to Nagasaki for a bit more study of obstetrics, Ine eventually settled in the newly renamed city of Tokyo. There, she reconnected with half-brothers Alexander and Heinrich, and the three remained, if not affectionate siblings, then, well, at least on speaking terms. Which, given Ine's abrupt, though definitely justified, disconnection from her father, was a win in its own right. Ine would go on to be a highly regarded Western-style doctor, developing close friendships with, among others, Fukuzawa Yukichi, who in turn recommended her to the imperial court when, in 1873, the Emperor Meiji's concubine, Hamuro Mitsuko, was about to give birth. Ine assisted with the process, but the child was stillborn, and Mitsuko died of complications shortly thereafter. It would take another six years for the Emperor Meiji to successfully produce an heir. Still, Ine's reputation did not suffer. After all, not much can be done about stillbirth. Instead, she was paid well by the government, and her reputation continued to soar. Alternating between Nagasaki and Tokyo, she continued to work as one of Japan's most famous doctors until her death from complications related to food poisoning in 1903. So what can we make of this complicated family legacy? Philip Franz von Siebold is still remembered very fondly in Japan, despite the rather ignominious end of both his stints in the country. He's considered to be one of the great popularizers of Japan around the world. His affair, or whatever you want to call it, with Kusumoto Taki is occasionally celebrated as something more romantic than it clearly was. Viewed through a modern prism, it takes on a sort of doomed cross-cultural romantic appeal, even though it's pretty clear by his behavior in the 1850s that von Siebold's romantic ardor for his former partner had cooled. The sons, Heinrich and Alexander, meanwhile, are also remembered very fondly when their names come up. They're far less famous than their father outside of Heinrich's specific stature in the field of archaeology, and for good reason. Philip Franz von Siebold was an outlier during a time when few Westerners could come to Japan, and even fewer were concerned about popularizing Japan overseas. His sons, by contrast, blend into a wider trend of foreigners who were hired by the new Japanese government as a stopgap while Japanese replacements trained to do their job. Historically important work, to be sure, but less glamorous, and work that a lot more people did. Ine, it will probably not surprise you to learn, has the most complex and interesting legacy of all these people. Her story has this wonderfully operatic quality about it that make it tremendous grist for the pop culture mill, to the point that today it can be hard to separate Kusumoto Ine the person from Kusumoto Ine the fictional icon. Indeed, after World War II, Ine's life has been the subject of a novel, three TV shows, a musical, and, most fascinatingly to me, an educational comic book series of biographies intended to provide young people with role models. These pop culture stories all derive their drama from similar factors. Ine's cultural inheritance as a child of two worlds, her status as a woman in a male-dominated society, and her status specifically as a mixed-race person. The first was difficult to navigate, but ultimately the source of her rise to prominence. The second, unquestionably, was the source of many of the obstacles thrown in her path 
from how long it took her to get her own practice. I mean, she moved to Tokyo in 1869 after she'd been working in medicine for close to two decades to the fact that one of her teachers assaulted her. The third is less clear. Ine's own account of her life doesn't focus much on questions of racial discrimination, though in a society as closed off to the West as Japan was for a good chunk of her life, it's not out of the question that she would have faced unjustified scrutiny for her heritage. By many accounts, her looks made her parentage very clear. Her eyes were blue, her hair was somewhat curly and brown. Clearly, she would have stood out. And this last part is what many modern dramatizations of her life tend to focus on, the difficulties associated with being mixed race. That children's biography comic, for example, has people describe her as an ainoko, a rather derogatory term for a mixed Japanese-non-Japanese child. In that sense, Ine becomes a sort of progenitor figure for all the mixed-race children of Japan's future, for what today are called the hafu, the haves, as in half-Japanese, who have become increasingly prominent in Japanese society in the modern period. To my mind, what makes the story of the Siebold family so interesting is simply that it's another example of an intimate micro-story bound closely to the tides and trials and travails of Japan's macro-story, and really the world's macro-story. This is a family that would not have existed in anything like its recognizable form without a very specific set of conditions prevailing across the world, and whose lives were profoundly impacted as those conditions shifted. It's a reminder of just how bound together world history is, of the connectedness that can create or destroy a nation, or create and destroy a family, under the most improbable of circumstances. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Julio Correa for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net. That's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R dot net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we take on Japan's most famous poet, Matsuo Basho. 